This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday the 10th of November. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The United States says Israel will begin daily four-hour military pauses in the north of Gaza to allow civilians to escape and for desperately needed humanitarian aid to get in. Officials are continuing to try and negotiate a longer pause in an attempt to free the Israeli hostages captured by Hamas last month. In the West Bank, the Palestinian Health Ministry says at least 11 Palestinians have been killed after raids by Israeli forces. For more, I spoke to Middle East correspondent Alison Horn. Ali, when will these humanitarian pauses take effect and what will they look like? Well, according to Israel, they've already started. What Israel is saying is that it will be four hours of a humanitarian break in fighting to allow aid into parts of northern Gaza and also to allow thousands of people to flee their homes in northern Gaza to go south as per Israel's warning that they would be in danger if they stayed in the north. So the White House has said that Israel has agreed to this four-hour break each day. But interestingly, the United Nations has expressed some concern about what these sort of pauses will look like and the effectiveness of them. They say that because the UN hasn't been involved in brokering an agreed pause between all sides, meaning both Israel and Hamas and other militant groups, that it possibly may not be as effective as we're hearing at the moment. But certainly from Israel's perspective, they are saying that the first pause already happened in the last 24 hours in Gaza, and they say it will happen every single day now. You've been in the West Bank. Now, there's been another raid there by Israeli Defence Forces. What happened? Yes, so we were actually on our way to Janine, which is in the northern part of the West Bank today. Um, As we were about to go in there, we got alerts that the military had just started an extensive operation inside Janine. The total figures are still to come out as to how many people have been killed in there, but we have heard from the Palestinian Authority that at least 11 Palestinians have been killed, they say including two children. Israel says it was conducting counter-terrorism operations. It's provided examples of a number of Palestinian militants that it says it killed, that it used drone strikes, they used heavy machinery to rip up the roads. Uh, It's one of the biggest operations we've seen in the West Bank since the war in Gaza began. And I must tell you, driving through the West Bank today, which I go there very frequently. It was quite shocking at times as to the intensity of the military operations that we're seeing. For example, in some Palestinian towns, I was driving through and every single shop was closed. There wasn't a single Palestinian on the streets. The streets were lined with Israeli military. And Israel says that it's in those positions because it's trying to make sure 
that there isn't further militant activity in the West Bank and possibly to avoid a third front developing when they're already fighting on a front in Gaza and also on a northern front on the border with Lebanon. That's our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has spoken with the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, expressing Australia's support for a two-state solution in the Middle East. But how much capacity does the Palestinian Authority have to lead again in Gaza at the end of this conflict. Frank Lowenstein was a special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations under US President Barack Obama, and he joined me from Washington. Frank Lowenstein, thanks for your time. The Palestinian Authority couldn't hold on to Gaza 16 years ago. Are they in any sort of position to run Gaza now? Uh, absolutely not. In fact, they will be lucky to hang on in the West Bank uh, at the rate things are going. So I, I think there's going to need to be a major effort to strengthen the PA starting in the West Bank and then uh, in, in Gaza to follow if they're ever going to play any kind of meaningful role there. And when you consider the massive reconstruction that would be required after this conflict in Gaza, not to mention the humanitarian crisis, can you imagine a, a time when the Palestinian Authority can actually have the strength, the, the, the capacity to lead? Well, after the, it depends on the degree of, of leading that you're talking about. After the war in 2014, uh, we set up something called the Gaza Reconstruction Mechanism, which got the PA in there on the ground, helping to distribute humanitarian assistance and begin the reconstruction process. I think something like that may be doable in the in the in the reasonably foreseeable future. But if you're talking about the PA playing a role in governance in the West Bank uh, in the aftermath of Hamas, we're, we're we're a very very long way away from that. And honestly, when it comes to reconstruction, getting the the Arabs in particular uh, to pay for reconstruction in 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 Gaza, that's going to require a path to a two-state solution. They've been very clear on that. And frankly, that'll be what's necessary to get the PA by their own account to play any kind of meaningful role in Gaza. So in some ways, that's the biggest challenge the administration faces, how to create a credible path to two states to get folks involved in reconstruction and PA involved in governance. You know, you say there needs to be some assurance on, on a two-state solution, but is there even appetite for that in Israel or the Palestinian territories? That's a really great question. In, in Israel, I think that it, it remains to be seen. This this current government is certainly not of, of any mind to move towards uh, two states. And in fact, uh, uh, they were taking the West Bank in exactly the opposite direction. And, and there's still some in that government, Smotrich and Ben Gavir in particular, who would like to use this as an opportunity to destroy the PA really once and for all. So it will depend a lot on the leadership. If you had a different government in there with a different perspective and maybe th thought of the importance for Israel in terms of its own self-interest of strengthening the PA, then, then you might be able to have uh, you know, a government that, that that set forth the past two states that people found credible. But right now, the mood in Israel is nowhere near uh, that would be necessary in order to move in that direction. So there's there's a lot of work that remains to be done. Israel's leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, has made clear that his country should have overall security responsibility in Gaza. Is that going to fly with the Palestinian Authority? And would the US even accept that scenario? Well, yeah, it depends on what, what he means by overall security responsibility and the time frame that he's talking about. I don't think this war is going to end anytime soon. I think the major military operations may go for another month or so. But then I think there's going to be an extended period of several months where the Israeli military will be on the ground in full force and running uh, counterinsurgency operations, targeted uh, assassination operations, sort of what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so I don't think there's a, there's a, there's a time frame here for beginning to contemplate what kind of governance would come after the Israelis and what kind of security situation uh, will emerge until we know exactly what the 
what power Hamas has left when Israel's military. Who should pay for the reconstruction? Who, who should manage that? In my sense, has been the first instance it'll be the United Nations uh, and perhaps NGOs that will come in and take money to provide for immediate humanitarian issues as soon as this, the, the security environment allows. Reconstruction is a very different question. We, we had a really difficult time raising money to rebuild Gaza after the war in 2014. We, we had a number of donor conferences, and it's just difficult to get people to pay to reconstruct Gaza when they feel like it's just going to all get blown up again in the next couple of years. So again, that, that ties into the need to create a different kind of political horizon, a path forward that people in the region and around the world will feel like is worth investing in. What about Hamas? I mean, how likely is it that Hamas, even if it is severely degraded, will re-emerge after this fighting stops? I don't think anybody really knows the answer. It depends on, on how much progress Israel makes uh, both militarily, but also in terms of creating, and Tony Blinken has been very clear about this, uh, a more positive vision for the future that will get the people of Gaza uh, to be willing to move away from Hamas. Not that they ever especially supported Hamas, but uh, they're going to be very skeptical. Israel is very skeptical of, of what their future looks like. So there's a battle militarily, but there's also a battle for ideas uh, on the ground in Gaza that we're going to have to do you know, as good of a job as we possibly can of, of making that vision clear to people. And, and what about the United States? How keen are they to, to leverage Israel to push for uh, some sort of two-state solution? Well, I think what we're doing now is just trying to create the, the, the general uh, uh, concept in, amongst Palestinians and really everybody around the world, particularly in that region, that we, that we are still committed to a two-state solution. What we're going to be able to do to get the Israelis to actually move in that direction, especially when the mentality of most Israelis right now is one of great trauma, I think they'll be very, very adamant on on maintaining full security control. And, and some of those objectives are going to be very difficult to square with an independent Palestinian state. So I think that's that's the big challenge for, for, for Biden and his guys. My, my sense is, honestly, it'll be very, very difficult to get the Israelis to move uh, in any meaningful way towards Palestinians. There will be too many in that in that country, in that government, who don't want to reward uh, uh, Hamas for, for such a, a horrific, violent attack. The only moving part in all that, the big wild card, is the Saudi normalization relations. I think if there's any way to get that back on track, uh, uh, that could open up some doors for the Israelis to take more steps uh, towards two states than they might otherwise be willing to do, because that's a big prize for Netanyahu and, and, and really a lot of Israelis. That's former US Special Envoy Frank Lowenstein. Ukraine has intensified its attacks on occupied Crimea in recent months, striking Russian air defences, a key military shipyard, as well as the Black Sea headquarters of the Russian Navy. A group of partisans operating inside Crimea has told the ABC it's been providing coordinates to the Ukrainian army to help facilitate these attacks. The Crimean combat seagulls are warning Russia their resistance movement is growing and that the occupying forces can expect more strikes on the Peninsula. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane has this exclusive report from southeastern Ukraine. It was the missile attack that rocked the Russian Navy. The headquarters of its Black Sea fleet destroyed, Ukraine claiming the strike killed 34 naval officers. Now the partisan group, the Crimean Combat Seagulls, has told the ABC it provided key intelligence to Ukraine's armed forces about the naval base before the attack. In an exclusive video provided to the ABC, a spokesman for the partisans, who is hiding his identity, said the group was using secure channels to pass on coordinates of Russian military bases and storage facilities. 
The strike on the Russian Navy base was a direct strike at the core of the occupying military structure. We believe that this destruction served as an irreversible point for the Russian occupiers to realise their impending collapse. This deadly action resulted in the elimination of many high-ranking enemy military officers, which made them realise the danger of remaining in Crimea. The ABC cannot independently verify the claims made by the partisans about their activities. Crimea was illegally annexed by President Putin in 2014 and was used by Russia as a launching pad for its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. Its warships based in the Black Sea have been firing missiles at Ukraine's civilian population ever since, and Kyiv is hoping it can eventually cut supply lines to Russian troops from Crimea. Tamila Tasheva is President Zelensky's permanent representative for Crimea. She's told AM that Ukraine must recapture Crimea for the sake of Europe's future security. It's our territory. That is why we fight for our territory on political and diplomatic ground and, of course, in military way also. If we do not retake Crimea, it means that in a few years after we finish this war, Russia restart their invasion to Ukraine. But winning back Crimea will be difficult. Ukraine's counteroffensive in the south has yet to make a major breakthrough. And with Kyiv estimating that up to 800,000 Russian citizens have resettled there since 2014, it's likely the Kremlin will throw everything at the fight to keep the territory under Russian control. But the partisans say their numbers are growing and they have a warning for Moscow. We want to convey one thing to the Russians. Crimea is a Ukrainian peninsula and only death awaits our enemies. This is Steve Kinane reporting for AM from southeastern Ukraine. Well, there's been plenty of focus this week on overstretched borrowers following the RBA's interest rate rise. It is a tough time for renters too, with new data from property analysts PropTrack showing there's never been fewer available rental properties nationwide. Here's Oliver Gordon. Music hums from the cafes of Melbourne's Brunswick Street, where 23-year-old Isabel is enjoying the afternoon sun. The architecture student moved to Melbourne to learn how to design houses, but for a while there, couldn't find one to live in. I moved here in February from Denmark, and I had such a hard time finding a place. After an exhaustive search for a room in her price range, she gave up and took the only option left. So I just opted out and went for a student accommodation and paid, what is, was it, 430 a week? Yep, for a eight square metre little room, hotel room basically. Isabel's unsuccessful search for a rental was back in February. Since then, Melbourne's rental vacancy rate has dipped even lower. Data from property analysts PropTrack has it sitting at a record low of just 1.09%. PropTrack economist Anne Flaherty. What it means is that in October, just one in every 100 rental properties was available for rent over the month. Typically, we look at a vacancy rate um, of about 2 to 5% historically. And it's not just Melbourne experiencing an unprecedented squeeze. Nationally, the vacancy rate was just 1.02% in October. Again, that is a record low. The Economist says the country needs more homes, 
quickly. The supply of new homes is not keeping up with population growth. This week, the Reserve Bank increased the cash rate by 0.25 percentage points to levels not seen in more than 10 years. And Flaherty says these historically high interest rates are making it harder for long-term renters to transition to home ownership. The interest rate rises we've had so far have reduced borrowing power by about 30% from 18 months ago. So that issue with affordability for buying a home keeps people in the rental market longer, which contributes to more renters, which, of course, contributes to lower vacancy rates. After a six-month stint in a private student accommodation facility, architecture student Isabel did eventually find a room in her price range. But she says if the market conditions stay the way they are, change is needed. I think more rights as a renter is is what you need. It's a human right to have a place to live, right? So you, you can't need to change that system somehow. That's Melbourne renter Isabel ending Oliver Gordon's report. A new study has recognised Australia as one of the world's leaders in breast cancer detection. Four out of five cases are now being picked up early, as Isabel Musali reports. Radiographer Kim Finnegan runs a breast screen mobile clinic, visiting towns and communities across Western Australia. Some of the women she sees haven't had a mammogram in 10 years. So being able to go to from the north to the south, east and west of the state, able to grab all the women that we do to have their breast cancer checked, do any further tests that need doing, it's it's just amazing. It's It really has just saved so many women's lives. It's initiatives like this one which help detect breast cancer early. Now a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association is shining a light on early detection rates across the world. Dr Isabel Soyamutaram says over the last 30 years, Australia has made great progress. She's the study's senior author and is with the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer. So for Australia, for example, the proportion of women who are diagnosed at the very late stage of breast cancer is around 5%. It's one of the best in the world, so Australia is doing well. And she stresses early detection is vital. The survival of women who are diagnosed at a very early stage, in Australia it's around 40%, the chance of survival is over 90%. Dr Soyamutaram warns Australia still has work to do to make sure there's equal access to early diagnosis. She says those of lower socioeconomic backgrounds are more likely to be diagnosed in advanced stages. Associate Professor Andrew Redfern agrees. He's from the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research and is a breast cancer oncologist. If we think about the people that um, are lower socioeconomic groups, so they're less well off, sometimes even leaving your three jobs to go and have screening is hard. So um, also education tends to be lower. So we need to find sort of different forms of education that get better to people in those categories. He says detection rates for Indigenous Australians also fall far behind but he welcomes the study's findings, as does Dr Amy McCartreed from the University of Queensland. Four in five breast cancers being diagnosed early is actually great news. We can do our best forms of treatment with uh, what's called curative intent when the breast cancer is found early. And while eligibility for Australia's screening program begins at age 40, 
Her advice is... Anyone, male or female, who notices a change in their breast should go and see a GP and get, get things checked out. But please avail yourself of all regular screening opportunities, whether it be for breast cancer or bowel cancer. Keeping on top of your health is going to be the best way to stay healthy for longer. That's Dr Amy McCart-Reed from the University of Queensland, ending that report by Isabel Masali. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This week, Donald Trump gave testimony in a civil fraud trial in New York. But while he might be in trouble legally, politically, he's on track to become president for a second time. Today, senior political correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, Molly Ball, on the latest polling that has Trump out in front in key states a year out from a US election. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.